I mean, to some degree, a creative brief, whether you're using it for a logo design or a name, um, is an exercise in expectations management. And, and I think there's sort of a, a connotation around that, that you're trying to lower expectations, and that's not what I mean at all. It's that you're trying to make sure everyone is on the same page and that when you say we're going to create a great name for this or a great logo for this or whatever it is, that phrase, great name, I mean, what do we mean by that? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Everybody Brands Podcast, where we know that when you have clarity about your brand and for your business, so do your customers. The Everybody Brands Podcast gives you insight into branding and brand strategy that helps you focus on your customers and empowers you to outmaneuver your competition so you can achieve your company goals and grow your business. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Everybody Brands Podcast with Brian Soy. Today, I'm talking with Rob Meyerson, who is a creator and podcast host of How Brands Are Built, highly recommended. Uh, Rob also leads a Level C Artisan Workshop on brand naming. He's the principal of the branding agency Heirloom, and most importantly right now, he is the author of the new book called Brand Naming, The Complete Guide to Creating a Name for Your Company, Product, or Service. And I'll tell you, this is a book I could have used at least five times in the past five years. So, Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Sure. So what uh, what, um, what compelled you to write a book? Yeah, good question, because it was a significant undertaking, probably bit off. Uh, well, I didn't bite off more than I could chew. I guess the, the right metaphor is uh, uh, my eyes were bigger than my stomach. <laughs> um, I... I Set out to write this, I suppose. I'm going to steal a line from Alina Wheeler, who uh, wrote Designing Brand Identity. And I had the chance to interview her on my podcast, and I've gotten to know her pretty well. When I asked her that question, she said uh, basically what you just said, that it was the book she wanted on her shelf. And that's kind of how I felt. I've There, there are a couple other books about naming. Um, they're all good. They have, you know, they have their strengths. Um, but having looked through those and having done naming for over 15 years, I always felt that there were some significant things missing um, from anything, not just books, but any written articulation of how naming is done that I had ever seen. And so it was sort of just, uh, I don't think, I don't want to call it frustration, but it was more bewilderment. Just why, why has nobody documented this? And I felt like, well, I've done this enough times now, and I've done it in different places, different parts of the world, different agencies, uh, in-house at HP to, to see how it's done, and I can document it. And so I just started writing it down, and, and I think that's when, before I knew it, I thought, oh, this is the outline for a book, and, and that's where it came from. And it's a really an excellent, let's just say, outline, expanded outline, as I, as I read through it. Yeah, I, yeah. I saw. I wish I could have, you know, just some other insights I would have had. Because um, I, you know, I name as I, as I was thinking through back through it. I mean, I design fonts. So mm -hmm. over the past twenty five years, I've named typefaces. I've I've trademarked yeah. some of them. Yeah. Um, you know, we've we'll go through naming projects for our clients um, from time to time. But even even at that, a client will say, "Hey, I want to like one of our clients want is launching an all green, all electric." lawn mowing service uh, and he was like let's just start a new company i'm like whoa, whoa 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 let's 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 prototype this first we'll come up with a name for it and then then we'll just see if there's interest in the market which we you know we did some research 
But the naming part of it, I went through, you know, like all the obvious ones seemed taken. Then I went to the less obvious ones. Those were taken. Yeah. And <laughs> we did settle on one. It's called Green Living Lawn Care. It ties in with his idea of outdoor living for his 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 parent company. So it was a nice tie-in too, because we were able to extend his outdoor living brand a little bit. Great, great. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, that experience that you just mentioned of feeling like every name is taken. Um, anyone who hasn't done naming, uh, you need to know anyone who's listing that, that that'll probably be your experience. And, and anyone who has done naming probably has bumped into that same, uh, that same challenge that it feels like your first hundred ideas are taken by somebody else. Your next hundred ideas are, are almost all taken by somebody else. And so a lot of naming uh, is a volume game. Um, and I say a couple of times through the book, I, I quote Amanda C. Peterson, the former head of naming at, at Google, who said that we're looking for quality through quantity. And that's really how, how I think of it. We, we have to come up with hundreds, sometimes even over a thousand name ideas to then start to whittle those down and find that one uh, sort of needle in the haystack that, uh, that ends up being the final name. Yeah, and, and I concur completely with that experience because our last big naming project, which we completed last year, I mean, we went back with revision after revision after revision and the funny thing is the name they ended up settling on is the one I wrote down in our initial, not even discovery <laughs> meeting, the sales meeting I had with them as they're describing the process. I'm doing the business development. I, you know, I'm listening. I reached over, lifted up the sheet of paper and wrote down a word, put the paper back down and then just saved that through for the process. And, uh, and it made it. That's, it that's shocking. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's crazy. Well, it, it rarely goes that way. And often that, that first idea that feels almost too good to be true often is uh, too good to be true from a legal standpoint. And that if you thought of it uh, quickly, somebody else probably did too, and they may have registered a trademark or something like that. So that happens quite a bit. Um, and that's why so much of this book is, you said it's a sort of an expanded outline. I mean, it it's a it's almost like a procedural, like a, a step-by-step um, how naming should be done or how it is done by professional namers. And so a big part of that, and maybe more than, uh, than you might expect if you haven't done naming, is looking at the legal implications of your different ideas. Um, I'm not a lawyer and namers don't have to be lawyers, but they do need a, at least a, a decent understanding of how trademark law works and how to, um, how to check whether or not a name is gonna be available from a legal standpoint. talking about naming, you're usually looking for something, you know, three to 20 letters long, and there's only 26 letters in the alphabet. So it's like, it seems like there's only so many ways to solve this. And yet, when you start doing naming, you realize that that adds up quickly, and it's, it, it starts to feel like there's an infinite number of possibilities. So um, I really enjoy that that aspect of it. Right. And and just, you know, not trying to give away anything from the book too much, but, the, you know, you had some really fascinating di diagrammatic approaches to doing the naming, to doing the meaning behind the names. Um, the, mm -hmm. I wouldn't call them flow charge, but more like circles of influence and meaning yeah. around those. So again, if you're, if you're thinking about doing naming for anything, a product, a program, I, I really recommend um, brand naming Rob's new book. Uh, because it really is a complete guide. It's, I mean, you get into things again that I've discovered along the way 
<laughs> like if I would have had your book as a guide, it would be like, okay, here, we're going through st step four. And we're going to do this now. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It, um, I mean, two, two long chapters in the middle are about coming up with name ideas. And certainly that is uh, a huge part of, of naming, but it might surprise people to know that it, it's uh, the other 12 chapters are, are just about the process. Um, so getting started, getting a brief in place. Um, so much of naming is about managing people usually. Um, if you're a consultant trying to name something for a client, then definitely you're, you're trying to manage expectations, manage uh, a team of people and drive them to, a, to agree on something. Um, and then there's the legal aspect. And so, so much of it is about really that step-by-step -step process and not just the coming up with ideas part, which is critical, but it's it's just a piece of the whole process. Right, and I and I you you coin you use the phrase in there that I use all the time. So much of what we do is you know design professionals, brand professionals is manage expectations. Yeah, you know, yeah, um, it, and that happens at a couple of different steps. So I mean the the entire. I mean, to some degree, a creative brief, whether you're using it for logo design or a name, um, is an exercise in expectations management. And, and I think there's sort of a, a connotation around that, that you're trying to lower expectations, and that's not what I mean at all. It's that you're trying to make sure everyone is on the same page and that when you say we're going to create a great name for this or a great logo for this or whatever it is, that phrase, great name, I mean, what do we mean by that? Like, what do we want this name to be like in, in sort of broad brushstrokes? Do we, are we looking for real English words? Are we looking for something entirely made up? Should it express a certain idea? Should it have a certain kind of tone or personality to it? And to the degree that you can agree on some of those things, get them documented, get everybody who's involved, um, you know, critical stakeholders, decision makers, people with veto power, get them all to look at that and agree, that's the kind of expectation setting, um, for lack of a better phrase, that, that's really critical because it just, it gets everyone pointed in the same direction and it prevents kind of a worst case scenario, which is getting all the way through the naming process, presenting your ideas, uh, getting all the way through the naming process, presenting your ideas, and then finding that somebody important felt like you were kind of off the mark entirely, that, you know, they, they thought some other kind of name or names that express some other idea were really what, what you should have been looking for. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that. Another piece of the expectations game is, um, and th there's a long chapter that really d dives into this, is when you're presenting your ideas for the first time. Um, and that is kind of a, a moment of truth, I call it in the book, because it's the first time you're sharing the creative work and any, any creative professional, you know, has experienced the, uh, the sort of um, dread of walking into a room and sharing those ideas for the first time, but also the exhilaration of it, especially when it goes well. Um, but there are a lot of things you can do to ensure that, that, the, that those ideas are received the way you want them to be. Um, and it's not just walking in and sharing them. There's a sort of a, a preamble and some things that you can say to help people understand how they should be evaluating the names. And so that's another piece of really important um, expectation setting. 
Hi, I'm Donald Miller, author of Building a Story Brand, and I know you've probably been looking for somebody to help you with your marketing. I want to recommend Brian Soy, and here's why. Brian is a Story Brand certified guide. He's actually spent time with me, to, and he has learned how to create marketing that actually gets results. I think most marketing is a waste of money because it's all designed to make you look good, feel good, all that kind of stuff, not to actually close sales. Well, Brian knows how to close sales with marketing. If you want to grow your company, call Brian Soy and hire him as a marketing guide. You will not be sorry. Mm -hmm. I've also found that in, in kind of the precursor conversations and, and meetings that lead up to that presentation is to use some of the words that may be part of the name. Um, so like I noticed on your website, use a couple of words we do, focus and clarity. Um, so we drive through to clarity with all of our clients. We talk about that, but I always drop that as soon as possible into even the, a, a business development meeting. And then I wait to see how long a client repeat before they repeat it back to us or, or the prospect. And it's usually within 10 to 15 minutes because it resonates so much. Um, yeah. So we, you know, we've done that too, you know, you know, picking up on, you know, what, what's a, what's a word that the client may use a lot that may be relevant to the name. So I just call it foreshadowing. So you're, you're kind of priming them in, mm -hmm. in advance to hear using a little bit of the, you know, neurolinguistics that we can use, you know, that, yeah. and again, that whole idea of neurolinguistics, I think kind of just leads into this next idea is like, you know, can a brand name influence buying decisions? Yeah. Um, well, absolutely. I don't think I, I don't think I would have probably ended up writing the book if I didn't believe that that was true. Um, and yeah, I mean, we can talk a lot about kind of why, why I think names are important, but it's funny. A lot of people, uh, a lot of people cite the, the line from Romeo and Juliet when they, when they try to answer a question like this, or when they think about names, it's the, you know, what's in a name, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. I'm sure I just butchered it, but that, that idea, and it's funny because a lot of people, I think, take that to mean uh, that the name doesn't matter. But if you think about it, I mean, even if you think about it in the context of Romeo and Juliet, right, they end up dying at the end of the story, basically, because of their last names. And so no matter what Juliet said, um, you know, she, she ends up, uh, and I think even when she says that, uh, implicitly recognizes the, the power that names have. Now, the, those are, you know, that's a very non-business um, kind of situation. But the, the truth is, um, you know, if you called a rose something else, while it wouldn't change the underlying properties of that flower and, and what it smells like, it would, it would change our perceptions of it. And our perceptions are what end up mattering. And that's so much of what branding is and, uh, and naming, you know, fits into that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you wrote perceptions influence and determine how we experience the world. Uh, which I thought was uh, just a great point up, up front in the book there, because it's how we evaluate the value and meaning that, that brands have for us. Yeah, um, and it's the reason, you know, I mentioned in, that, in the beginning, it's the reason that um, Antarctic toothfish, which sounds disgusting, uh, was renamed to, to Mahi Mahi to make it sound, or sorry, to Chilean sea bass, uh, to, to try to make it sound more appetizing, which, which worked. Um, so I think everyone, you, you think about it in your everyday life. If you think about it en enough, you start to recognize that, yeah, what you call something can, can impact whether you expect to enjoy it or, or not, or kind of what you think of it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, this hits me um, when we're registering domain names because um, I've been developing websites since mid eighties, like uh, forever mm. and registering domain names. And so I've changed, gone through several registrars and the one in my mind and my experience works the best is called Namecheap. Yeah, I've used that one. <laughs> and you know, just they they give you so much control. We can share we can share access with clients. But when I have to tell a client, I always have to preface it with, "This company has the worst name ever." But it's the <laughs> name. and so I have to. I feel like I'm always having to explain their name choice. But yeah. uh, but it's really it's got it's it's not only it's it, it they're also they're not exactly always the least expensive. But right. it just they have such value. So I just keep thinking, oh, I wish they would change their name so I didn't have to explain it away every time. Right. Yeah. No. Because it yeah it has some negative connotations. But certainly uh, to 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 some audiences that's exactly what they're looking for. Right. Just give me the cheapest uh, option. So I see how they landed there. But you're right. The, these names that are more descriptive, um, like Namecheap, tend to box companies in. And so. Uh, now that you mention it, I, I would not be surprised uh, if that company ends up changing the name at, at some point, uh, rebranding. We'll send them the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to come up with ideas named Cheap. One of the things I talk about in the in the book that I think namers don't think about enough is what the name is going to look like. Um, and so I do think that's a place where namers and designers need to kind of put their heads together. There are some, there are some names that are, they may even be pronounced, they may roll off the tongue. And yet still, when you look at the word, they're kind of clunky because of the, the different letters or there's just something, you know, they're heavily weighted towards one end or the other because of the, of the size and shape of the glyphs or, or something like that. And obviously designers have all kinds of options in playing with, different versions of different letters and, and things like that. But um, I do think that as much as designers have to think about how am I gonna take this word and make it into a logo that, that looks right and to your point, um, you know, evokes something about the brand and the name, but also is legible, right? Um, I do think namers have a little bit of a responsibility at least to kind of think ahead as to, uh, you know, is this, is this going to look okay? Is it going to be easy to read? And if they need to talk to a designer about that in advance, or the designer who's going to be making it into a logo, you know, is this something like, what would you do with this? Um, I do think that's something that needs to be considered, not just the sound of a name, but the look of it as well. Mm -hmm. No, completely agree. And for us, it's, at least for me, it's never been separate. It's like the name and the logo have to work together. Uh, yeah. Well, one, and one nice thing the guardians have is that, um, I feel like they can somewhat confidently assume that most people reading that name are going to be English speakers, just given that it's uh, Major League Baseball. Um, obviously, it has fans outside of the U.S., but it seems more sort of American, more safe to make it like an American-centric name than a lot of international or global businesses have, where they really need to think about, you know, that GU at the beginning of the name is going to confuse a lot of non-native English speakers, and they're going to think it's Guardians or, or something. So thinking about pronounceability and how the word is spelled, especially when you're going to be dealing with uh, other languages and other countries is critical. Yeah. And it's in, you know, in our increasingly global culture where even if you, you don't consider yourself to have a global brand, your product or service may end up being visible in other countries. 
Um, even our, you know, my company's name Aspire, you know, somebody said, it's not going to be easy for people to pronounce. So I do have to explain it like E is silent. Mm -hmm. I mean, G greater, like the original word Aspire just makes it a little more unique. Uh -huh. um, so what, what makes a bad brand name? Sure. <laughs> well, we, we didn't go through everything that makes a good one. Um, so let me let me rattle off some things there. I think um, that first off, it's important to say that there is no kind of golden list. Uh, uh, some of the other books out there, or some blog posts you'll find about naming, will will kind of profess that there's ten things every brand name has to do in order to be good. And I, I always feel like that's an oversimplification. Some some names uh, are great because of one thing, and other names are great because of some entirely other thing. But I do think it's important to think about three areas for every brand name. And that's strategic, brand names should be strategic, creative, and then they also have to meet some technical uh, criteria. So strategic is, is things like, does it convey the right meaning? Um, is it adaptable? So we talked about name cheap. I mean, that really, they have to, like, it feels like they have to be the cheapest. And if they're not, it feels like the name kind of breaks. And so that's a not adaptable name. Um, is it distinctive creativity uh, in a name? Uh, you know, that's pretty subjective, but I think memorability is one of the most important things for any brand name. And that comes down to all, all types of different creative things you can do with the name, making it, uh, it could be that it rhymes or that it's just some really emotionally powerful word or, or something like that. Um, sounds good and looks good that I, that I mentioned. And then the technical stuff, we talked about legal uh, and then we touched on linguistic just now as well. Um, and then it also should be pretty easy, hopefully, to spell and pronounce. So to answer your question, bad brand names usually fall down on one or more of those things that I just listed. Um, and really, it, it could just be one. You know, it could, like, it could be that uh, everything's great about it, but it's just really hard to pronounce. It's a mouthful. You know, it's a tongue twister. And that's probably enough to make it not a great name. Um, there are some other things I think names can do wrong that maybe fall outside of that list that you see sometimes. Um, one is these names that are kind of overstuffed where it just feels like they're trying way too hard to imbue meaning into the name. The example I give in the book is Mondelez, the, the company behind like Oreos and other snacks. Um, and that's just a made up word where Mond is supposed to mean world. Delize is supposed to speak to deliciousness. It has this weird made up symbol over the E that's supposed to help you pronounce it the way they want you to pronounce it. It just feels like kind of it's trying too hard and they've tried to pack too much into it. Um, another thing that name namers do wrong or that companies do wrong and startups are, are uh, notorious for this is just being trendy. Um, so even if the name seems to meet all of the criteria that I listed out to make it a good name, if it's just part of, if it's just, um, riding on the coattails of some wave of similar names, like all these startups with LY at the end, then it, it's probably not a great name because it's probably going to blend in and it's going to look really dated um, five or 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do a little bit of work in the nonprofit sector. And so I'm always researching donor portals and donation tools. And I know there's one called Gively, there's one called Givelify. And in my mind, they're almost identical. Like, yep. Yep. which one do I refer you to? Um, yep. Yep. And those are the two suffixes that I feel like you see most often. It's the, the Lee from like bit.ly um, and, and about 500 other uh, companies 
there, there's actually a, a namer named uh, Nancy Friedman who tracks these on her Pinterest. She has a Pinterest board full of LY companies. And I think she's over 400 now or around there. And then the, the IFY from Spotify. So that's where you got GiveLify. Um, that's another trend. And I, I just think you got to be really careful doing something like that. Basically, I would avoid it. But um, at the very least, take a look around and make sure that you're not just blending in with a bunch of other companies with similar trendy names. Yeah. And sometimes, though, it really works. Uh, we use a service called Amplify, mm-hmm. which which creates AMP versions of websites. So the Google, you know, they're more friendly for the Google mobile side uh-huh. uh, because Google has an AMP uh, model. That, so Amplify is just a, like a natural extension of what they do with the Google right. framework. So it can go, you know, it can go both ways. So what do you do when you get stuck in a creative rut and can't come up with that right name? Yeah, so the book, um contains over 20 techniques for coming up with brand name ideas. Um, And it starts with simple things. You mentioned some of the visuals in the book. So a mind map, for example, just whether you're sticking post-it notes on a wall or or doing it on a a whiteboard or even in your head, it's kind of just start with an idea, come up with related ideas, synonyms, metaphors, and then go from there, come up with related ideas from each of those. But if you do get stuck, you know, that's a place to start. But if you get stuck, um, I have a list of things in the book that I call blockbusters. Um, So writing through or or breaking through writer's block. Um, One of my favorites came from Eli Altman, uh, a namer at a a company called 100 Monkeys. And his is just come up with bad ideas. If you just really are having trouble coming up with good ideas, just flip it and say, what's the worst thing we could possibly call this? You know, what, what would get us laughed out of the room? What would get us sued? What would I be embarrassed to say uh, to introduce myself uh, as coming from that company? And just have fun with it. Come up with a few dozen terrible, terrible ideas. And, you know, it's, it's partly just for fun, but it, it sometimes it kind of gets the creative juices flowing in kind of a, a strange way. Um, and it, it you can kind of keep that momentum and then, and then start asking yourself, okay, now let's get back to some good ideas. Sometimes you look at those bad ideas and you think, um, well, if this one is so terrible, what's the opposite of it? You know, why is it so bad? And so can I just flip part of it somehow, give it the opposite meaning or, or change it in some way? And then all of a sudden it becomes a good idea. So that's that's one thing. Um, and then lastly, this applies to all creative pursuits. And so it's not, um, it's not anything unique to naming, but um, exercise, uh, socializing, getting enough sleep, all of these things um, can really there's science behind how much they can impact your creative process. And so if I'm really stuck, you know, I'll, I'll go do something else. Um, go, go take a walk, um, you know, talk to somebody about something completely unrelated. Um, and kind of the, the science to sum up all the science behind it, it's basically some of the best creative work is done um, in the subconscious. And so if you can kind of trick yourself into focusing on something else for a while, um, it gives your subconscious an opportunity to maybe come up with a few solutions um, that you then just need to be ready to capture, write them down or, or record them on your phone before you forget them again. Yep. That is so true for me. It's going and taking a drive because yeah, the, that's a great one. The, the, the driving is a right brained activity and creativity is a right brained activity. So yeah, I don't know, whatever it is when you're driving, just my mind will solve a problem in seconds. Right. Sitting here staring at 
the screen for two hours. Absolutely. Yeah. Just kind of zone out. And and there's a reason that people come up with their great ideas in, in the shower. Well, lots of reasons, but um, you know, one of them is just the white noise of, of the shower uh, of the water hitting the, the tile um, kind of drowns out everything else. And, uh, and yeah, it, driving, showering, whatever it is, if you, if you just get yourself to kind of zone out, focus on something else, um, sometimes the, the solution will pop into your head. And that's why it so often does as you're drifting off to sleep or right when you wake up. Um, and so keeping a, a pencil and paper next to your bed while you're on a naming project um, can, can sometimes be the difference between cracking that problem and not. Sure, that's excellent. So this is so good. Um, I just wanna ask you a couple more questions. Uh, and this, this happens all the time. So what comes first, the brand name or the .com? <laughs> this is a contentious one. Um, this is the one that'll get, uh, get comments because people have very strong feelings about this, um, as do I. So I'll give you my take. My take is that um, the name comes first and that uh, a great name with a sort of compromise uh, .com, and I, I don't even think it's that big of a compromise often, um, is much, much better for your business and your brand than a perfect you know, name.com with a name that just sucks. Um, and that's kind of where you have to end up. And unfortunately, I mean, the reason this is even a question is because uh, it's so hard to get an available .com these days for a reasonable price. Um, and so if you're really gonna force it and say, I, I need to have the exact name.com, you will probably either have to be willing to pay a lot, which is fine for some companies if they have the budget and want to, or uh, you'll end up with some misspelled name or hard to pronounce uh, name that is usually problematic in one of the ways that I just mentioned, You know, what makes a bad name. So um, yeah, I just think for those reasons and also just for process reasons, people should focus on coming up with the best name they can that meets all of the criteria um, or as many of the criteria as possible of what makes a good name. And then once they've narrowed it down to three, maybe that, that are kind of their top candidates, could be anywhere, you know, three to five, um, then start digging into, okay, what kind of domains we can, can we get? And chances are they won't be able to get a perfect.com domain, but that's when you start thinking about, okay, well, can we just add a word, um, you know, a descriptor after that name to get the .com or could we get a, you know, a .org if it's a, a nonprofit, is there some other kind of extension? And so I list a bunch of different ways of kind of solving that in the book, because I think it really is important to, to get the best brand name you can um, before you, before you really find that domain. Yeah. No, I agree hundred percent. Although I wanted to change my company name and I wasn't going to change it unless I got the domain name. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. And I think, um, you know, I don't want to overstate the case. I, I've had plenty of times where I've advised clients, okay, you're down to these five names that you love. Um, all of them appear to be legally available. You know, we've checked them linguistically. Now let's look at domains. And sometimes it's a big influencer. Um, sometimes, they can get the exact.com for one of them, maybe for a for thousand dollars and the others are just unavailable. And I, I would never let sort of any one factor uh, make the decision because I think you have to weigh all the different factors, but 
but that depending on the client, depending on the business, um, that can be a really significant driver. And so they may choose that name as a result. And I do think there are some industries and businesses where it does make more sense. I mean, if you're launching a streaming platform, um, you know, along the, like an HBO Max or something like that, then yeah, maybe it's, I've heard it argued that it's more important to have the exact.com. And I think maybe that's true versus some B2B, you know, tile manufacturer, then they can just put tile at the end of the name and I think mm -hmm. they'll be fine. So last question before we close. So I've got a naming project I need to do, but I have a short amount of time. What five key things should I look for in your book, brand naming? Yeah, um, let's see. I'll, I'll count here and see if I have five. I think um, the first, we, we've talked about a lot of these, so I'm gonna do a little review here. Um, the first is just the, the power of language and, and the, the fact that names can make a difference. I think it, it's, it, we, I go over that in some detail in the book and I think it's just important. Even if you are already a believer, there will be other people that you'll probably have to convince, you know, why are we spending so much time or money or energy looking for a great name? And so understanding that names can make a difference and why is, is one, maybe the first thing. Um, the second is not, skipping or kind of glossing over the brief. A lot of people like to just jump into, you know, the first few ideas. Um, and sometimes teams will just start emailing each other, like, here's an idea, what's a good idea for the, the company name or the product name? And then you just get into this sort of generation immediately. But it's important to get that brief written down first and, and to get it agreed on. And kind of related to that, my third thing is to get it approved by the right people and to just involve the right people at every step in the process. If somebody's going to come in at the end and blow the whole thing up, the way to avoid that is to have them come in, come in at the beginning and have a chance to kind of weigh in at that briefing stage. The, the fourth thing is to make sure you do that legal and linguistic screening that we talked about. Um, whether you do it yourself or you can pay somebody else to do it. And, and I, again, I go into both those approaches in the book. Um, that's something that cannot be skipped or should not be skipped. And then the last one, the fifth thing, which we did talk about is just remembering that naming is as much about psychology as it is about creativity. Um, there are times where it can be frustrating because you know, as you may have these amazing, brilliant, creative ideas. And yet, if you can't get other people to agree that they're amazing and brilliant, um, then you'll go nowhere with them. So you have to think about convincing people, persuasion, uh, driving consensus, and that expectation setting that we talked about at the beginning. Yeah, great. I'll make sure I capture those five in our show notes because. Oh, great. Right. So. Um, I seem to recall you had a, a website for the book. Um, you've got your own website. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you and buy? Yeah. And um, well, I guess the easiest thing for, for anything um, I'm doing is just robmeyerson.com. Um, and from there, you can get to the book. You can get to my company, Heirloom. You can get to my blog and podcast, How Brands Are Built. Um, if you just want to, well, the, the book's for sale, so you can find it on Amazon. Um, but you can also go to brandnamingbook.com if you just want to learn a little bit more about it um, and, and maybe see some excerpts and, and things like that. Yeah, great. Well, we'll capture all those in the show notes. Rob, thanks so much for your time today and for your wisdom and insight and helping us figure out uh, this whole brand naming process. Thanks so much for inviting me, Brian. It's been a pleasure. 
Many people struggle to create customers that build their brand and sustain their business. If this podcast helps you outmaneuver your competition and gain new customers, please open your podcast app and leave a five-star review so more people can discover and listen to the experts and insights we share. Music from this episode is the track Wrong by Dan Hennig, found on youtube.com slash audio library slash music.